Hello and welcome to Resourceful, stories from the site, proudly brought to you by Resources Unearthed. At Resources Unearthed, we help executives, professionals and business owners in mining and resources to be successful both personally and professionally. We've created this podcast to help you in your employment or business, and we'll be chatting to people who have a proven track record of success in the industry. Thanks for joining us. Today on the podcast, we're sharing a conversation our contributor Craig Barry had with Scott Linderblad and Peter Andreasen on the Digging with Accountants podcast. We found this conversation to be highly valuable and hope that you enjoy. If you'd like more information about the Digging with Accountants podcast, head to our show notes. Gents, first things first, succession tends to mean different things to different people. What does succession mean to you? Yeah, thanks, Craig. I'm good to be here again. Look, succession, I think, you know, for me, it is generally when I think succession, it's a transfer of a business ownership into the next generation. You know, succession to some people is selling out of a business, etc. But for me, I, I see succession more as, you know, that transfer to the next generation, bringing through the, uh, the, the kids and having them in the business, but making sure that all that wealth is transferred correctly. Yeah. Similarly, I, I kind of think just looking at the word succession, it's got success there. So for me, succession's continued success whether that be for the business itself or whether that be for the individual selling it, everyone trying to get that continued success in their life. Perfect. And how about, for, how about from a superannuation perspective, Peter? Do you see a lot of um, consideration of superannuation when people are considering their succession plans? Look, I think it is a big way that people do. They're looking to try and get as much of their capital that they can generate from sale of business or, or their just general life. They're into a superannuation environment that can definitely get that lower tax concessions and things like that, that and just help to set them up for an easy, comfortable lifestyle afterwards. Do you see that's overlooked sometimes? Uh, look, I suppose it's probably something that everyone's not quite aware of, but with the right advisors in place with them, then definitely they... Yep. Hopefully, you're getting that good advice that superannuation is a, a really effective place to look at for your succession Perfect. planning. Perfect. Yeah, look, I think, you know, when I've spoken to my clients about it, often their version of succession generally means passing on to the next generation, selling the business for the maximum possible price, or perhaps even getting ready to list on the stock exchange. And, you know, look, they are fairly common things when, when we do hear, hear it from them because... You know, from a point of a business owner, succession for them is that they are leaving the business and they are either, as I said, passing on or they are just effectively exiting the business. So um, it does tie in there nicely from what you were saying. The main drivers though around uh, selling that business seem to be trying to get the biggest bang for their buck. You know, they've worked all their life, they've had you know, potentially 10, 20, 30 years in this business and no matter how they transfer it or sell out of it, they really want to make sure that they get as much of a sale price as possible. And, you know, look, that's completely reasonable. I, I think, why not? If you're going to be selling that business and you've worked, put blood, sweat and tears into it, why not try and get as much as you can? And, you know, don't leave anything on the table. I don't think that, you know, most business owners ever really just wake up one morning and say, you know what, I'm selling and I'm putting it on sale tomorrow. I mean, look, if they do, 
unfortunately, the truth is that they're never going to get as much value as they possibly could from it, because selling a business, it's it's and you know doing a successful succession and transfer, it's all about planning, timing, and you know as they say, maximizing the business. That doesn't mean just from a tax point of view. That means from a profitability point of view. So that you know every extra one dollar of sale in in that business could potentially generate three to four times that in sale price so you know what we normally see and and what i do discuss a lot with our clients is let's talk ahead let's make sure that if a sale is even on your mind it may not be for five years but let's start thinking about it now because there are lots of things that you can start implementing and you know, depending on the size of your business as well, you know, just up and selling it is not always as easy as it sounds, right? You've got a lot of key stuff you need to make sure are locked down. You've got a lot of other considerations in there, um, supplier contracts, future growth, all that sort of aspects about how do we make sure that that's locked into the business when we actually go to sell it. And you know, there's, there's a certain process to getting the right price for your business and it's about having the right advisors around and just as i always say planning ahead it's not something that does just happen overnight as i say succession is more a journey than just an event and you know it's one of those things that you will constantly work through and eventually you know you may have a couple of false starts but eventually you'll get there and whether that be through exiting of the business selling it ipo management buyout or transfer to that next generation you'll get there if in in the best possible way if you've thought ahead pete what about you what do you think you know what's your sort of experience tell you about succession yeah so we like to think of it i guess as a process so there's a definitely a succession process there and there's there's lots of parts to a succession process Mm -hmm. Uh, some of these may include things like just your actual structuring of your business for succession then, like you've mentioned earlier, trying to then maximise the value of that business so that we can, you know, get as much as possible out of it, and also then preparing ourselves for the future. And that, whether that's ourselves as the person exiting or the business itself, preparing it for the future. So, there, is, like I said earlier, there's more than just that, but we're probably going to just focus on these key areas here uh, today. So. What we actually want to talk about is what we're calling our succession mantra, which is don't leave succession planning to the last minute. So I guess that's where we're... Very true. So I guess, Craig, have you got any thoughts on those uh, comments there? That's my mantra as well is, you know, if you're looking to sell, or even if you're not looking to sell in the near future, like Scott said, you know, it's, it's something you should still be looking at. You should be talking to your advisors and basically saying, look, you know, what if something happened to me? Do I have a business that's capable of being sold? And, and if not, what do I need to do? So I guess the first step for us is to look at the structure and to consider whether the the business structure as it currently stands is capable of, of a succession process. Um, it's, it's the most fundamental part of, of the business. And in our experience, business structures evolve. Um, often you'll have a structure that was suitable when the business started, but it's not suitable when it expands overseas or interstate or opens a new office, um, you know, even in a different suburb, or when it purchases its own premises or when it maybe expands into a new, new sales line. Uh, a structure that was suitable when the business started almost always won't be the ideal structure when it comes to sell. Restructures come into, into play at some point in time, and that's something that the three of us here often uh, assist our clients with working through but the main hurdles of doing a transaction or restructure uh, tend to be 
structural costs, so things like CGT and, and transfer duty. If a business restructuring is necessary in order to uh, implement a, su- a succession plan, and, and if that's left into the last minute, it's often too late, and the outcome might be that you can't get that ideal structure in place, or the cost of doing so might be so prohibitive that you don't end up doing it in that sort of way. If our succession mantra is used, however, um, and, and that is don't leave succession to the last minute, business owners should be regularly reviewing their structures, ensuring that not only is their current structure fit for purpose, but is also succession ready. Yeah, and I, I think, Craig, exactly right. We touched on this in our last episode about you know, your structures and keeping an eye on them. You know, Yes, you might be set up first, first year out, business is completely different to five years down the track or yep. two years or three years, who knows? But the key there, as you've pointed out, is that you know, structuring and restructuring, it's all about staying on top of it and being aware of when that business changes and having the professional advisors around you to make sure that you can understand that, hang on, your business has actually evolved now and your structure hasn't. And I think those key points can have significant outcomes for succession planning down the track and eventually, you know, the tax effectiveness of your um, structure and ideally the amount that you can reinvest into that business while it's continuing to grow. So look, I think um, you're exactly right there, Craig, and appreciate you throwing those comments out there. One thing that I'll throw out here now is research that we generally see shows that around half all businesses are being put to market under the dreaded four Ds you know, another little 4D acronym, here we come. <laughs> but uh, look, what we're looking at is divorce, disease, dispute, or death, right? Now, disease is not a plague, okay? But, um, <laughs> but what we're looking at is, you know, generally over half those businesses that are out there on the market have not been thought through for sale. It's unexpected. And you know for a fact that if a business has been thrown on the market because one of these 4D reasons... Um, then at the end of the day, you are not going to maximise the profit potential. And we're the same though. We advise our clients who are looking to buy. And if we can sense that a business is under duress or has been put on the market unexpectedly, I tell you, we're not going to be advising our clients to pay top dollar for it because we know that there's a lot of opportunity for them and we want to try and help them get a good bargain out of this. And you know, obviously a fair deal for all, but at the end of the day, when we're representing our clients, we want to make sure we're giving them the best advice. And if there is an opportunity to grab a bargain, then let's take it and help them grow it. So what, what about you guys? I mean, death, disease, dispute, um, divorce, all those sorts of things pop up um, time and time again. What's your experience with it? You know, Craig, I imagine you've had quite a bit of experience with these. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually in the middle of finalising um, an arrangement where we've had two of the four Ds in the same same situation. So we had a dispute followed by a divorce. So that was that's been interesting. Um, and so Christmas is going to be great this year. <laughs> <laughs> very much so. It's going to be um, quite a, an interesting situation for that particular group of people. But basically, the in this particular scenario, we had the dispute that raged on in the background for about five years with um, the owners going hell for leather against each other and, and racking up hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. And then when that finished, one of the owners de- then decided to to se- separate from his from his wife um, and 
again, further hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of legal fees and not to mention the fact that, you know, obviously the owners are then not fully concentrated on the business. In these sort of scenarios, it's often the business that tends to suffer. That, you oh, know, you can only imagine that right there. You know, five years of dispute with your business partner. So yep. who's really focused on the business? Yep. So maximizing value is definitely not happening. Yep. And then once that's settled, then you've got a personal family matrimonial issue to deal with where I don't think I've ever seen a client run a business well during a divorce. Correct. So no, they had two good deeds there, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's not much fun. And definitely when you look at disease, I've seen those situations where especially you might have a business that's not just one person. It could be a, a group of people running a business and in the moment that one person, and they might be a key person in that business, mm. suffers any type of disease or you know, a serious illness, critical yeah. illness type yes. thing, which unfortunately generally leads to the, the final deed uh, yeah. in a lot of circumstances. But... Not always. Mm. Uh, it sometimes can, it can, they're needing to sort of offload yeah, their business interest just to pay for their medical bills. Exactly, and and, like and, it, and it can cripple the business in that those people who the people who are also in the business, like the other people who might be invested with them, they might not have the actual acumen, the, the ability yep. to step up and mm. take that role if that person was a really critical person in Correct. that business. So, definitely, where we're going back to having that structure in place and having plans in place to deal with these scenarios to to make sure you're going to maximise what. You yeah, and I think we'll get to that. So I think the next step that we'll go through here, Peter, if you, if you wanted to sort of talk through it, but it's that idea of maximising value, which is more than just sort of maximising profit. It's sort of doing other things that really try and enhance the value of that business. Yeah, so I guess what we all often see is people, when they are going into that process, they're trying to maximise the value of their business. They'll look at the options that they've got there. Okay, I won't record what I'm paying myself as a wage or, you know, they don't take a wage from the business. They're just getting a distribution and, and it kind of overinflates the profit line of the business. Things like where we might not be doing critical expenditure. We might hold back on some of the expenditure that we might need to invest in our business to keep it operational. And we're bringing forward some of our income into earlier years. So so I think actions like that we're doing into our statements making it look like we've got a really, really good, strong profit and loss statement in 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 our financial statements. But it's not always a truthful reflection of what the actual uh, business value or profitability of the business is for that year. Mm. So, and I'm like, all advisors are looking at this and, and we're, we're telling clients to do that, but like we mentioned earlier, on the flip side, there will always going to be an advisor for the purchaser. Yeah. And that advisor for the purchaser is knows the exact same thing. Yeah. So they're looking at those things, they're, they're redoing it, part of their due diligence process just to scale back and, and take out those things and say, hey, look, that's not legitimate. What would you have had to pay yourself as a wage if you were performing that role or you were paying someone else to do that role for you? So, Yeah, I think you're exactly right there, Pete. One of the things is unless that you're, that business is fully managed and you're just sitting back you know, on the beach while your business is making your profits, there's definitely going to be a, an extra wage that you're going to have to factor in that's going to affect the profits and then eventually the net saleable value, right? And yep. I think some people forget that it's the little things you can do. You don't need to do the big changes to try and bring in all this revenue. Obviously, that all helps. But if you actually just each year go through the costs on the profit and loss, look at what can we tidy up, where's all our leakage going, you'd be surprised at how much profitability can come out of just keeping an eye on your costs and making sure that you're not just wasting your money. And, um, you know, look... We see it all the time and it's something that, you know, business owners just get busy running the business 
and they just keep paying for stuff and there's yep. some legacy items that are just sitting there that no one really notices and before you know it there's thirty forty thousand dollars which at a multiple of sort of three to four to five times a couple hundred thousand dollars extra right yep. or it could be depending on how large the business is there could be a couple hundred thousand dollars of expenses so yeah key point there is don't just assume it's the big items mm. it's always about staying across your numbers and actually looking at how can we keep these costs down relative to um, your industry and your business itself. Mm. Yeah. Leading on from that, I guess I, I've, in my experience anyway, I've found that, yes, to, sort of keeping an eye on sort of trying to maximise profits and, you know, putting off non-critical expenses and things like that, yes, they are good for, for a type of window dressing, but I guess what I find it is that you'll maximise your value um, not by presenting highly profitable financial statements, but by being able to show that the underlying business is strong and stable. Mm. From our perspective as you know, advising a business purchaser, the things that we would be you know, looking at from a due diligence perspective is making sure that the business is not reliant on the owner or a few key staff members for any reason. The business is not reliant on one or a few key customers um, and equally not reliant on one or a few key suppliers and also that the business has strong internal processes, especially in relation to finance, HR and corporate governance. With those things in mind, um, if you are going through this succession process and, you know, depending on where you are in the process, but, you know, if you're only, you know, maybe a couple of years out from potentially wanting to sell your business, um, one thing that we strongly recommend is that business owners uh, undertake a a review of their internal processes um, and drivers and potentially undertake some reviews um, with external people. So for example, um, we would recommend uh, potentially engaging a, a business valuer. It might be just your normal accountant or it might be someone with a, like a professional um, qualification in that area to undertake a, a valuation of your business and determine a realistic asking price for the business. So potentially having someone who's maybe independent of, of the business currently, uh, who can come in with fresh eyes and actually look at some of the, the things that are going on there. Um, because often, you know, doing a valuation, you, you know, you'll, you'll be selling it often, if you're selling the, the business on the market, you'll be selling it to an independent person. So often they'll have their own independent advisors. So having your own independent person looking at it can actually provide you with a sort of an unblinkered view of of what the realistic value of, of your business actually is. And um, Craig, I'll just mention there, one of the things we call that there, you know, I just had it on a webinar uh, last week, but basically you've got that value gap, right? Mm. So Mm. if you're ready to sell your business and you're saying, look, I want $3 million for that business, and we're going, that's great, we don't think your numbers stack up, but you're going, I want $3 million, let's get independent valuation, see what that's worth. If that comes back at $2 million, well, there's your value gap, a million dollars. So now this is where the planning comes in and we say, well, when do you want to sell the business? Is it a couple of years? Great. We've now got a couple of years to work on generating, you know, X amount of revenue times multiple to fill, in the gap. To fill that extra million. Yep. And at least you know then and there that, all right, well, we are on the behind the ball, so let's start working towards um, getting that profit up. And, you know, nothing helps you um, increase your business like focusing. Right. Yeah. yeah, don't just sort of run it through. Next minute, you're like, I need to get my cost down. I need to get new contracts. If that's all you're focusing on, 
that's what's going to happen. Mm. So, you know, that's a very key point, getting in that independent valuer, um, not just to give you a pretty report, but to give you some key financial information that you can help make a bit more of an informed decision about. Correct. Um, and, and I guess the other type of review that you might consider, again, you know, these would be typically maybe a year or two out from sale, is engaging in... It could be your accountant again, um, or an M&A, or you know, mergers and acquisition specialist, uh, to undertake a pre-sale de- due diligence review um, of the business. So what these often enable an owner to do is actually see those gaps in the internal processes of the business, and you know, for example, where agreements aren't properly documented, where you know maybe there's not enough corporate governance in place, maybe there's not enough independence in relation to the internal financial processes. You know, maybe there's a risk of you know embezzlement or you know fraud or whatever the case is that isn't being addressed. Um, so, by undertaking this sort of review, you can make sure that you know when someone comes in and they're saying, "Oh, we want to see these agreements and you know these trends and this forecasting and etc. Cetera, etc." Cetera, you've already got all that back work done. And you're not spending the entire DD slash sale process trying to generate these reports that maybe you should have already had in place. So, I think. Both of those uh, activities are quite critical. So having a valuation done and also having a DD review, like a pre-sale DD review done are quite useful. Uh, obviously, depending on the size of the business. I mean, if we're talking about you know relatively small businesses, maybe not so much the, the pre-DD review. But certainly, uh, in, in my view, I mean, if you're looking at a business worth you know more than a couple of million bucks, it's certainly something I'd be strongly recommending is, is at least considered. Yeah. Craig, I'd also say that it's not always, like I know we're saying, just before sale, like one to two years, but I think it is something as well that you might start considering on a more regular basis just to be actually looking at the value mm-hmm. of your business. Mm, yep. Like it doesn't have to be going to a full blown M and A every time or anything like that. Yep. But just having that conversation with your advisors and stuff like that to say, hey, just ballpark, what do you reckon the business is I could get it for today. That gives you an idea in your head, especially if someone does come knocking, mm. you've got that in the back of your mind, hey, six months ago we kind of Estimated yeah. it was at this, I'm getting this offer. Yeah, I mean, and, and often the businesses that we see, like not all the time, but are ones where the founders built the business up from scratch and the founders still very key in the business. Those sort of businesses, you know, that they're often highly, highly profitable because, you know, that founders probably got some fantastic connections in, in the industry or, you know, just built up this fantastic idea from scratch. But where there is that sort of key person that the whole business is relying on, that's really where those four Ds really start, you know, yeah. becoming quite critical because at the, at the end of the day, the business is only, because that founder is often the person wanting to step away from the business. Exactly. And so the business is only as profitable as it would be without that founder in it. And so I guess once the, once the owner gets to a point in, you know, the business um, sort of evolution that he's thinking, well, time for me to sort of step away or to reduce my involvement, that's where he needs to really start thinking about, well, what am I doing at the moment? At the moment, how critical am, am I to the value of this business? And, you know, what's the solution? You know, do I need to start bringing in some people underneath me to start taking on to, to more of my role? Um, or, you know, are there other potential solutions to that uh, particular issue? Yeah. Yeah, definitely agree. Uh, yeah, a bit of risk mitigation there on the sales process. Mm. So I yeah, yeah, no, completely understand. And, and look, obviously, you know, the big one, we are accountants. We do love to talk about tax. <laughs> so when you do sell your business, ideally there is no tax. But uh, every now and again, there will be some tax to be paid. And look, 
Dax, you know, we can go on for days and weeks about it. You'll fall asleep as my <laughs> wife normally does when I talk about it. But uh, generally, I think for today's purposes, we'll just touch on the small business CGT concessions because these are the ones where you can get some really beneficial outcomes from a tax point of view when you sell your business. And it's not always that, uh, you know, that you have to have a really small business to access these. Oh, they're called the small business concessions. They, they go for quite a number of different types of businesses. And so, you know, look at, when we, when we talk about these, you know, what they are is that the small business CGT concessions are, there's four available options that you can potentially access if you're eligible. And, you know, basic eligibility is that your turnover is less than two million or, um, you and the people connected with the business uh, have net assets of less than six million dollars, not including the family home, your super, um, and all those personal assets. So, yeah, look, very uh, high-level uh, eligibility there. Um, don't be fooled. The there is a lot of complexity and technicalities with the small business CGT concessions, but we will not dive into them today. Um, but look, let's say you are eligible. Fantastic. What does that mean, right? Is it just a fancy acronym from the ATO? No, it's actually really good. So the first one is your 15 year exemption. So if you've held your business for 15 years, um, then you potentially uh, can sell that business and there is no capital gain at all, right? And depending on how much it is, you can get uh, almost up to 1.4 million yeah. now, is it? I into think super? That amount. Yeah, yeah, roughly through the CGT life cap or yep. another. Into super, yeah. There we go. And that's on top of all your excluding, sorry, all your concessional, non-concessional things, which Pete knows all about. <laughs> um, the next one there, though, if you can't get into that, right, because obviously that's our holy grail. If we can yep. get into 15-year exemption, then forget everything else. Or we have no tax to pay. Um, the next one, though, is the active asset reduction. So that one there, in, in general, if you sell an investment and you've held it for more than 12 months, you'll get a 50% tax-free amount, right? So the active asset reduction acts just like that but gives you another 50% tax-free. So, you know, take, for instance, you had a million-dollar capital gain, you use a 50% CGT concession, which is um, for only more than 12 months. That brings that gain down to 500000 and then if you're eligible, you can use the active asset reduction as well, which brings that 500000 down to 250000 So you can see straight away, just with those two little concessions there, reduce your gain. The other one we have is the retirement exemption. And that one there is that, you know, uh, don't be fooled, you don't actually have to retire <laughs> for this awesome. one. Um, but if you... Uh, selling your business, you meet this concession, you can put almost five, up to $500,000 of that gain into super, or if you're over 55, you can just pocket the money and you don't have to put it into super. So a bit of flexibility on what we do. And then there's the last one is the small business rollover. So if you're someone who is, you know, you're not actually retiring, you're a bit of a serial entrepreneur and you wanna um, roll those proceeds from that um, current gain into your next venture, well then you have the option to sort of invest that money into the next venture and 
effectively defer your tax until you then sell the next gain. And then we assess the concessions at that point. So look, really, really good concessions available if you fit into eligibility. We've gone through a few examples, but Pete, you know, you've done some of these uh, CGT concessions. Show us, give us a bit of a rundown on a clear example there. So I guess building on like what the one you kind of built earlier, and let's let's assume we've made a $4 million sale of our business and, and it's a business we've started from scratch. So we've got no, no real cost base for this asset. So our total sale proceeds are just going to be a straight up capital gain for us that we would have to chuck into depending on who we've got and let's assume we're running with a husband and wife they've got either equal shares or it's a partnership or something along those lines so they're 50 50 percent share on it i'll so, pretend i'm the one making the four million that's very nice <laughs> <laughs> let's keep going with that <laughs> so so we've got that there so we're looking at now two million dollar capital gain going into each of the husband and wife's tax returns without any special considerations and let's let's have a look at some actual other considerations there things like we're going to say that the business has been operating less than 15 years so mm-hmm. so unfortunately we're not going to get that golden perfect 15 year exemption mm-hmm. in this case so we're probably going to look to see if we can use some of our other other uh, ex- exemptions there so as i said our first uh, first consideration there is that we've got that 50 percent general discount so long as we've had that business for over a 12 month period mm-hmm. so that's going to cut down our total gain from four million down to two Again, then what we can do is our, our, our active asset re- reduction, which again takes another 50% gain off that. So that's going to drop us down from $2 million of capital gain, sitting down to only $1 million to deal with. There are some extra like restrict or build, rules on being able to get that active asset reduction. Yep. We're not going to go into the details of that here. It's it's quite, there's a lot of complexity. Yeah. In we'll say we've that. met all the eligibility Elig- criteria. Yeah, we're we're eligible, yeah. Working through I, it. I think the way someone always explained to me, there's it's like a gate. You, you're going into a it's paddock. A gateway, you've yeah. got to go through the, each gate to get yep. to the next yep. step. So yep. you can't skip a gate. Yep. So, uh, and then look, so what we're seeing here is now we've got a million dollars sitting there in capital gains, husband and wife. They've each got $500,000 that they would have to put into their personal tax returns and if we were to take the approach and that's under the retirement exemption isn't it? it well that's it if we were to take the use of the retirement exemption then we're able to effectively cancel all of that capital gain out put that 500 if we're under the age of 55 we each put that five hundred thousand dollars into our superannuation fund okay we're, we're not going to be able to access that money until we can retire mm-hmm. but at least it's going to be in a really tax concessional position mm-hmm. and when we do go into that retirement phase depending on the advice you get from your financial advisor at that point in time <laughs> we won't go along that part but you can potentially be accessing that through pensions all sorts of things and, and really getting the best benefit possible there so and that and that five hundred thousand is that in addition to the normal 25 so, seven and a half thousand a year that, yeah that's definitely in addition to your to your regular contribution caps your twenty seven and a half thousand your honor 110,000 or 27,500 deductible ones, yep. your 110,000 undeducted non-concessional contributions yep. on top of other ones that I won't go into all the varying contribution yes. options you've got yep. out there, but yep. but that, that 500,000 is a lifetime cap. So once you've used that 500,000, it's gone yes. and, and can't be used again. So obviously some people might go and restart a new business and stuff like that. Unfortunately, they'll only get to that cap once. once and, yeah. and that cap does pay part of that million dollar cap yeah. at 1.4 yeah. and you know months. notice that the ATO have not actually indexed that $500,000 limit Six. you know was it 2006 <laughs> it 2006 around then oh yeah definitely back then and you think you know of all the things that are around in the ATO you can never assume that they're all the same right yeah. you've got other limits being um, indexed by CPI other ones not and you think how is a $500,000 amount a lifetime limit mm. I mean yeah 
I don't know. It does, unfortunately. I mean, five hundred thousand dollars won't even get you a house these days. No. So, like, Half a house. Yeah, exactly. So you know, I think that's something maybe the ATO could look into. Maybe the CBI. Yeah. That'd be nice. Yeah. Um, I won't hold my breath, but yeah. let's uh, let's see. No, I completely agree. Yeah. Once we've done the, the transaction, so, so so let's say we've gone through the process. We've we, we've gotten our business succession ready. Um, we've been through the the DD. We've gone through the contract preparation. We've signed a deal and gotten proceeds in happy day so so mum and dad have have received a like a lump sum payment or you know money that they've received from the from, from the buyers what's next so i guess next thing to consider is preparing for the future so so guys i'm sure you've heard the phrase the first generation creates the wealth the second generation builds the wealth and the third spends it i know i've seen this firsthand over the years quite a few times this can be quite disappointing um, when, when it does happen but equally I've probably seen as many situations where the opposites occurred where you know that sort of second and third generation have really kicked along and, and done really well so and I think a lot of this comes from the family's uh, view on, on how succession and, and family wealth planning uh, is actually being worked towards so um, in my experience there are two sides to succession uh, the most obvious side is obviously getting the business ready financials in order those sorts of things um, the other side is getting the family ready for that money because often what we get out of this is a situation where a family a family that maybe has always had all their wealth built into a business or into you know machinery and you know assets and you know any number of things but you know that wealth has never really been physically accessible at any one time because it's all you know locked away in that business we now get to a point where the business is sold there's you know a big chunk of money sitting in the bank account it's all accessible potentially what do we do with that and i think the important part of this and making sure that you know this becomes a generational type thing is is really educating the family and making sure that it's well and truly understood you know what role people in the family will play in that sort of family wealth ongoing so i, I call this the soft side of succession um and i don't call it soft as in it's 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 easy i, I guess i mean that there's a lot of soft skills involved here it's basically a lot of sort of understanding relationships understanding where different family members are at and where they want to get to and whether they want to be involved with the family sort of activities ongoing or whether they want to go off and do their own thing you know every family's got a, a black sheep i'm sure and and that's sort of where all this sort of comes into play so i've no doubt there's potentially some listeners today who might be business owners who own a fantastic business with impeccable business structure and, and you know they're set up to get the small business cdt concessions and they're planning to put a big chunk into super um, and spend the rest of the day sort of relaxing on the beach but what good is that if the business they're selling can't or the business or the uh the family unit can't uh operate uh, properly without them. What do you think, Scott? Have, have you given a lot of thought into how this process would work in a family context? Mm. Yeah, look, when it, when I think of family dynamics and succession, the thing that comes to mind is actually, by name, the TV show Succession. So, <laughs> as if anyone's seen that, yeah, that is a perfect example of how you've had the patriarch build the business over a lifetime, and still run it by the rule of his fist yeah. and then you've got the kids where you got i think they've got three or four in there one's completely out of it the other one's a bit of a nightmare he's doing his own thing and then there's two who really want to get involved but they turn out not to be capable enough yeah. right and so you know that is 
one, a fantastic show, so go ahead and watch it. Um, always love that. And, yeah, it's hard for my wife and I to find a show to watch together, but that is one we both love, so we'll always enjoy that one. But two, very clear understanding of the what, and while it is TV and dramatised, you know, no doubt we've actually seen plenty of cases where families are exactly the same. Murdochs, yep. Packers, <laughs> everyone. <Jason's. right>? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. You know, there's always family drama and especially when money's involved. I mean, we've said this before on previous podcasts for Craig, but, you know, money makes people do funny things mm. yeah. and you can have the best relationships, but all of a sudden when there's a couple million dollars on the exactly. table or 10, 20 million dollars on the table, yep. Oh look, that that changes everything, yep. and it's unfortunate that it does, but it does. Yeah, so build, builds resentment, builds yep. anything like that. Yep. You know, if yep. someone feels that they've been slighted, underhanded, oh, all the time, right? And and it's not just for the super wealthy. You know, no. This is everyday people. When you know, I think we had a client who inherited, you know, twenty, thirty million dollars through some uh, land sales. And there was about all of a sudden seven or eight of our kids uh, come out of the woodwork and, you know, it was very generous with them, but mm. they just kept wanting more. Yeah. And, you know, it's just torn the family apart. You know, it's just something that happens all the time, unfortunately. And we as advisors probably see it day in, day out. But look, I guess, you know, because we do see it a lot and it is always front of mind for us, we start thinking about, well, what, how do we how do we help our clients and our business owners avoid this happening? And you know, a lot of business owners, what we see, they don't actually talk to their family about yeah. the business. Yeah. Right. The kids know that there's money coming in. You know, they might they might be in the big house, the fancy car. So obviously, the kids assume there's a bit of money going around. Um, and if they haven't actually taken an active interest in it, well, then they actually you know. Won't I, won't know what that business does or or what's involved. It's, it's an yeah, interesting one that I um just read a stat about it saying people who are looking to move their business intergenerationally, like only thirty percent of businesses will succeed moving down yep. to a second generation. Then it like it'll drop down to twelve percent for a third generation yep. and a three percent for a fourth generation. So like the fact that Murdoch's are still going, well, <laughs> they're, they're they're one of the slight few who can actually get that type of business mm. to happen. But exactly, it's a very hard process. That's because the first generation's still alive, right? It's <laughs> <laughs> still kicking along. But um, but yeah, I think the the question we yeah, and the question we pose to a lot of our clients here is. Yes, you've run a successful business, but as Craig said, you know the soft side here. Now, how do we st- how do we go about bringing the kids in? You know, do the kids even want to be involved? Yeah. That's always the number one question. Um, you know, first of all, do they want to be involved? Because we've seen a lot of times where business owners just assume they do, or we're passing on next family, will do it, next generation will do it. Fantastic, and then you look at the kids, and they're like. We have no interest in this because you know they've had such a good upbringing. They're out traveling. They've yep. got jobs overseas, and and you know the mum and dad think, oh well, we'll just bring them back from the UK, and they can run the business in Australia. And, and you think, they're not well, coming back. <laughs> no, they've got their whole life set up. Yep. So you know, first of all, do they want to be part of it? Mm. Second. Do they have the skills to be part of it? You know, do they understand, you know, money, staff, finances? I mean, it's one thing to be able to spend money. I mean, we're all good at that. I don't think anyone would have trouble at spending money. But do you know how to manage it for a business? Cash flow, debtors, creditors, staff, making sure payroll's met every week. Is there someone in the business who they're going to put offside or like you might have a really high performance, high functioning staff member who... Exactly. Your kids come in and yeah, and they uh, you they know, feel put out. Yeah, 
And, and look, as we all know, um, staff and staff and people in general is one of the hardest things to manage. Right? It doesn't matter who you are or what you do. There is always a new staff member that will throw you a curveball, and you've got to learn how to manage with that. Yeah. So, yeah, it takes a lot of years of dealing with people to make sure that you can manage those relationships. And if you've run a successful business and you've had that in place. And as you said, Pete, you've got some real key performers or some high-level management who are thinking they'll be the next succession. Yep. And then your kids just come on in. I mean, that can cause a lot of issues straight away. So we've got to be very careful about that. But also, what if you've been building this business and yes, you've earned, had a lot of money throughout the years, so you're obviously quite well off, but by selling this business you know, we're talking it generates tens of millions of dollars, like serious wealth. You know, that is a very uh, big change to making a million dollars a year yeah. or $2 million a year, something like that, whereby while you're making good, consistent money, you've never had the big lump sum. And then so how will the kids handle that? How will the family generation handle that? Is it going to be that if you know you've worked your hardest to build this and now you've generated 10, 20, 30 million dollars? Obviously, for you as the owner and you know the person who's done this, you want this to last for generations. So it's thinking about well, are the kids on the same page with how this should be invested? You know, is this same? Do they have the same values as you? Do they want this to be going on for generations or do they just see it as theirs and they see it, do what they want? They want their one third or 50% each and just go for it. Mm. And that's where we go, look, what does that mean? How do we sort of get ahead of that? And how do we bring them in early to discuss it? Because, you know, one of the, um, and I've dealt with a lot of private banks on this, they've found a lot of stats in that the kids don't actually know anything about the money. And so all of a sudden, when it comes into their hands, uh, it's just they have no appreciation for the value or hard work that was, yep. um, you know, required to build that. And so they kind of, they don't value it as much. Like, of course, they love the money, right? <laughs> but all of a sudden, they think, well, that was easy. I've now got my money. I'll just go and throw in the market, put it into some crypto, and now I'll be <laughs> worth $100 million. And, yeah, hey, some of it might be. Yep. Uh, but... I think that's one of the key issues there is if you've never actually discussed it with your kids, well, how are you going to be able to pass those values on about money and the business and what it means to you um, if you haven't done that? So, look, I think that's... And, you know, the last one that I'd probably definitely be... And highlighting it, and this isn't something you probably need to ask them. It's probably something you know as as a parent. You know, do your kids get along, right? I mean, we know they're all siblings and they you wish the best for them, you wish you have this great family unit, but realistically, when you look at your kids, can you see them working together on anything, mm-hmm. right? Do they still fight for just, I'm not getting the same car as you, you Yeah, know? We're going to a family dinner, well, I'm going by myself, <laughs> you're going here, well, if, that's it, if they can't even come to a family dinner together, how are they going to run a business together? Yeah. How are they going to manage you know, tens of millions of dollars together? Mm-hmm. So I think it's something there that, you know, everyone forgets about the kids and they just sometimes assume that, well, we've got a really good business, it's managed fine, mm. they can just slot on in and own it. Um, definitely don't assume that, please. You know, come and you've got to start those discussions early. And, and it's about understanding how to have those discussions. So it's not they're going, oh, look, I'll just all of a sudden 
tomorrow, have a family dinner and say, guys, Here you go. <laughs> here's the money, yeah. here's, let's lay it all out. What do you guys think? Mm. Right. Come and actually have a chat to your advisors because we deal with a lot of family governance day in, day out. And to be honest, there is a bit of finesse in how you do it, right? You need to understand the family dynamics. We need to understand, you know, from previous experience, what that black sheep will generally do. And yes, you have different families, but ultimately the black sheep will generally cause the same kind of issues. So if we already know how to get ahead of that and where the warning signs are, we can approach them in different ways. And that can make it a lot easier for you mm. to have those discussions. And if it's always going to be difficult, well, then we get the advisors involved at each meeting, make sure that there's always someone to chair the meeting and that it's not just the business owner because mm. that way, as the business transitions, you know that you've got your set of advisors in there and that could be accountants, legal, um, and financial, mm. anything like that that can, will always be there guiding them. Not there to make decisions, mm. but help the kids, you know, evolve into the owner business owners and you know money managers that you think or would like them to be need them yeah, yeah. yeah. so I, th I think what you're really talking there scott is about establishing what they generally refer to as the family office or, or the family board so that everyone's kind of brought along given that knowledge and and they start to get a picture of the group it's not like you said earlier just the one person sitting from the high chair ruling with the iron fist yep. and and making sure that everyone now comes aboard we're all we're all ahead of we've got a family vision we know where we want to be we know what we want to do we're going to set a plan and we're going to get there and making sure that we can continue to generate this family wealth and we can pass it through our generations and you know we're, we're continuing that success that has been started by our earlier generations there yeah, definitely and and i guess talking to that family office family board things if you did want to go down that range then it is talking to an advisor like your accountant or your lawyer or your financial planner meant there are these sorts of things and, and they'll help you to develop those strategies so you know some things that they might come up with you are like coming up with a family charter so that kind of like we said sets out that vision that you want to do for the group and then working on the culture within the family so like we do we've got a black sheep how do we as scott said how do we nurse them along to make sure that they're not going to feel left out or that they've been or if they are being left out making sure that that's sort of understood understood why and they're not going to be coming at you and saying you know no give me my i want my half my quarter whatever i'm mm. entitled to mm. and then you're having to go sell the the family holiday home which everyone else loves yeah mm. just to just to yeah. Yeah. yeah so things like that documenting it very is the biggest one of the biggest things that we can do so making sure we've got our wills up to date all of those sorts of things that have got our estate plan ready to go mm. in the unfortunate time untimely passing of one of those mm. people and as we just said de developing that office or family board where everyone can sit around the table they all have an understanding, and mm -hmm. if we are making decisions, then okay, yes, the person who might have generated all the wealth, they're probably going to still influence some power over it, yeah, yes. but at least all the other parties at least have a feeling that they've got some influence in it, yeah, not correct. just. And then when it does come to that point where it spreads out, mm. they all have that feeling and ability to develop it. I, I think we've covered quite a lot of ground today, um, potentially maybe too much, but we'll, I, I think we've done pretty well. So I just thought I'd take this opportunity just to wrap up the discussion we've had today. So there's probably four main areas that I think that I think we covered today which potentially worth sort of just retouching on just to make, make sure we've got some important takeaways from them. So the first thing is getting the structure right. So Scott, have you got any sort of final thoughts on sort of structuring and what people should be doing? 
Yeah, look, I think, you know, as we highlighted last episode and just in general, getting the structure right from the start is so important and it's about engaging with your advisors and professionals along the way. And it's also about not just assuming that once it's set up, it's fit for purpose. So, yeah, yeah, evolving. Exactly. And that doesn't mean you change every single year. It just means that you're assessing it each year to understand where the business is at and getting ahead of the curve, not waiting until all of a sudden the business is blown up and now it's a bit, it's going to cost a lot to make changes. So, yeah, yeah, definitely just key, stay aware of it and monitor. Yeah, perfect. And I guess the next piece which was about maximizing value and minimizing tax um in a transaction pete did you have any final thoughts on that one yeah i think like we said we, we brought up all those factors earlier it's always about just looking sometimes it's looking at the little things to get the best out of your business yeah. but i think also another one is just keeping an eye on the value of your business over time like it's not just something you should always be focusing on yeah the day you're going to sell or the yes i'm ready to sell yes it's something it is something you should be like we said like just like the structuring it's evolving all the time. You should have an idea in your head. Okay, this is what I think it's yeah. worth. And, and making sure that you've got some, some sort of independent sort of view on whether what you think the business is worth is actually reasonable. Yeah, it's realistic. Yeah. Because if you're sitting there expecting that you're going to get $20 million for your business and... It's only worth and, 15. Or, yeah. It's only worth five. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a very much a different situation that what your life's going to be yeah. going forward Post-sale. to what you're expecting it. Correct. Next piece, which was getting sale ready. So... I guess I can address that one. So that was talking about making sure that you've got those critical areas in the business rock solid. So making sure that you've got the internal functions sorted out. So you've got um, your finance department and your corporate governance and all those sorts of things sorted out really, really strongly. Making making sure that it's not reliant on that, that key person, which I think is something that especially SMEs really are guilty of in, in mm. some respect of really having that founder or that key person that the business is almost entirely rely, reliant on so making sure that that's addressed and, and dealt with and making sure that it's not also relying on a key customer or key supplier because again you know it, it may not take much for that um, for those key sort of organizations to really you know rock the boat or something terrible was to happen mm-hmm. and I guess the last piece which um, we sort of just covered off on a moment ago was which was about sort of post-sale and you know making sure that the family group and whatnot are taken care of. Um, Scott, Pete, did you have any last words on that sort of concept of post-sale and you know having a family office and a family charter sort of type of thing? Yeah, look, I think the um, the family office and post-sale issues they are something that shouldn't be thought of post-sale. Hmm. You know, yeah, correct. I think that's probably number one is that yeah, before you're even selling the business, you need to be engaging and thinking about that. Yeah, the family charter, the family office, because it depends, especially if you want a succession plan where you bring your kids through the business, that needs to be dealt with. um, Long time ahead of. Exactly, long time before you're ready to, um, before you're ready to exit yourself. And if you are gonna sell down because you realize that the kids just aren't part of the business or you don't think it's appropriate, and so all of a sudden they are gonna get a lump sum, well then you need to be thinking about that as well. uh, Getting them educated on. Yep. Exactly, getting them educated on how to manage the money, and yeah. also, as as you mentioned, Pete, you know, what is the vision for this money? You know, yeah. What do we, I've seen it a lot where you get a lot of wealthy families who have exited out of business, and then the next generation has actually come through by you know putting together a philanthropic arm, 
and now they're doing a lot of impact investing as a family because the family have a purpose behind them on that you know they might want to address climate change um, or they may want to look at uh, as I said just the renewable energy piece yep. or there might be a, a personal um, cause like helping the homeless or something yeah. like that where yeah, they charities. go we just want to put our money towards that and they think that they can do it in a good efficient way yep. so post-sale issue generally should be dealt with pre-sale mm. so correct thanks everyone for listening to our podcast today thanks also to scott and pete for joining me i'm talking through succession if any listeners have any questions or want to reach out feel free to reach out to us through the william buck website williambuck.com otherwise thanks very much cheers thanks for listening to this episode of resourceful stories from the site we'll be back in a month with more tips and insight from our other industry leaders we'd love to connect with you You can find us on all the usual social channels and our website, resourcesunearthed.com.au. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode.